have your Bibles, go to Nehemiah chapter 5. While you're turning there, I have a bit of quivia, or quivia, trivia, there we go, question. When he says, carries me on eagle's wings, what is he referring to? He's not, ref- I'll give you a hint, he's not referring to, uh, I just carries me on eagle's wings, it's a grand thing. I'm not going to answer that question right now, you can. Look that up later. That's a very s- scriptural thought there that he has in mind, and it fits the context of the song very specifically. So you can talk about that later. Nehemiah chapter 5. Another thought while you're turning there is uh, we're going to talk about money today. Money is fun to talk about. I enjoy talking about money. A lot of church people do not. That's okay. We'll, hope, we'll pray God changes that. When we talk about money today, I pray this will be encouraging to your hearts. This will spur you on towards righteousness and, and such. All right, I'm not going to start with reading the passage. I want to start in and we're going to Work through a little bit at a time, talk about it a little bit more at a time, talk about it a little more at a time, talk about it. <clears throat> the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy said this, The antagonism between life and conscience may be removed in two ways, by a change of life or by a change of conscience. Rusty Johnson, the pastor of Renovation, says, Many of us have elected to adjust our consciences rather than our lives. I agree with him. What a profound statement by both of them. Even in my own heart, I find often that I try to adjust my conscience rather than my life. To get straight to the point this morning, my proposition is this. We need to consider today how we can live earning and spending money in a way that brings about reformation. That is the context. We're talking about expanding Eden, expanding the kingdom of God, bringing about reformation, bringing about God's vision for the way things should be. And this impacts both our earning and our spending of money. I know churches get a bad rap, you know. People just... Churches just want your money and just want you to, you know, all that kind of stuff. That I saw on in the news, well, not the news, it was kind of Facebook, which isn't really kind of the news, but you know what I'm saying, it's kind of my news channel. I mean, try to wisely sort through that just for the record. But, uh, you know, there's some pastor raising $65 million to, to pay for his private jet, right? Um, so at the end of this, we're going to take up an offering. <laughs> to get another engine for the Sunfire, yes. I did see a little bit of an oil leak this morning. So, 600 bucks, 65 million, right? One's righteous, one is not. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, so we need to think about earning and spending money. Anyways, I was just saying, generally speaking, people don't like churches talking about money. But God's Word talks about money, it talks about money a lot. And it should be our joy to talk about money. That's all I wanted to say as far as that goes. 
So the proposition this morning, we can learn, we, we need to learn how to live earning and spending money in a way that brings about reformation. It's just as simple as that. How do we steward our money to live in a way that brings about reformation, brings about God's vision for the way things should be? <clears throat> so we need to understand a couple things before we do this. We need to understand that even if we give all of our money away, it doesn't mean that we will have necessarily honored God. It's because we give it all away and live in poverty does not necessarily mean that we have honored God. We also need to understand that just because we have money, it doesn't make us evil. Money in and of itself is not evil. And having it is not necessarily evil. Our need is to desire and know how to steward what we have for the advance of the gospel. That's the key, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Need to know, we need to ask God for the desire to and the knowledge to steward what we have for the advance of the gospel. What I mean by that, for, for pro- proclaiming the gospel, for moving God's kingdom forward, to, to seeing God's vision become a reality, namely, people around us loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That is God's vision at broad. <clears throat> we need a desire to steward money for reformation. And I, and I pray that that's one of the things that God brings about. If there's anything I've learned in the past few years is that we can teach knowledge, 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 knowledge. You cannot teach desire for, but we can spur desire. And we need to ask God to give us the desire to steward His money for reformation. We need to know, so we need to desire. Second, we need the knowledge. We need to know how to steward money for reformation. And I want to say just as a side thought to that, we need to steward money in a way that reflects the reformation of our hearts. If doing comes from being, then does our money, the way we spend our money, the way we earn our money, does that reflect the reformation of our hearts? Or does the way we earn and spend money reflect the heart of someone who's not been redeemed, that someone has not walked with God? So with those thoughts, Nehemiah, is, Nehemiah 5 is going to show us how to live for the kingdom of God as it concerns money. What does Nehemiah 5 say about money, what's going on with money? And, and the idea here, what's wonderful, I think, about Nehemiah 5 is that there's, there's an address of money when it is plentiful, and there's an address concerning money when it is scarce. It's going to start off addressing money that's in scarce amounts, at least for a majority of the people, and then it's going to then address money that was in plenty. So the amount of money, I think what's awesome in Nehemiah 5, we see that the amount of money does not necessarily matter. However, the way the money is stewarded is of supreme value. We ask the question, what does it look like to earn and spend money like a reformer? What does it look like to earn and spend money? And we're just going to, touch the tip of the iceberg, you know, for this question. I mean, obviously, Scripture has so much to say about money. Jesus has so much to say about money. The Proverbs have so much to say about money. We're just going to look at Nehemiah 5 and a couple other passages very briefly this morning. So let's read, start with Nehemiah. We'll stop in a few verses and talk about it. Starting verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, 
For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are, fa- we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Let's stop there. The first thing, as we're thinking about a reformer, is this. A reformer thinks beyond himself when it comes to stewarding God's money. A reformer thinks beyond himself when it comes to stewarding God's money. So just briefly, what's happening in the narrative at this point? What's happening in the story? What you have is the nobles and the officials. These are Jews. He's calling them brothers and brothers. and That's an important interpretive point there. But the, they are brothers to brothers. The nobles and the officials here were taking advantage of the impoverished conditions of the people of God. Basically, what had happened is that the concentrated work on the wall that we've been talking about now for, for four chapters, they're working on this wall, they're building God's kingdom visible, and the concentrated work on the wall has meant that the fields have gone unworked, that the people are working so hard on doing this that they've not been able to earn money like they normally would in order to care for their families and so on and so forth. So with the fields unworked, the people had to find a way to buy food. So it appears that what they did was allow others to work the fields in exchange for grain. We'll let you, kind of like, we'll lease out the work of the field. You can work the field. We'll take grain in exchange for you working the field. But even though they did not work the field, here's the, the trage- the, one of the tragic pieces of this, is that even though they did not work the field, the king still taxed them on the use of the field. They still had to pay the taxes on the field. So they're not making money. All they're getting is grain. Plus they're paying taxes as if they were working the field. And then in addition to all this, they were the other thing that they were doing was selling their children into debt slavery. They were selling them into slavery. And here's the deal. If someone else has their field and they're selling their children into slavery, how are they ever going to earn money to pay the debt back to get the children back? You know, another thing that's interesting here, too, is that the idea here behind some of our daughters have already been enslaved is, is actually the idea of prostitution. Like, that they have been sold to that, probably to the debt, the, the ones holding the, de- the, uh, the money, the ones giving out the loans, the one doing the uh, taking advantage of the poor. So this is a bad situation. The wealthy here, the nobles and the officials, are not considering the impact on the people's ability to feed themselves, care for their children, or, or and, should say, devote themselves to the work of the wall. They're not able to do what God has called them to do because the wealthy here are taking advantage of the poor. So as we think about a reformer thinking beyond himself. I think that one of the first things that we should notice this. One, 
that we should accumulate money in a way that honors God. And we'll see this, this is what's going to happen, is that the way they are earning money here, Nehemiah is going to go after this. It's interesting, Nehemiah does not spend talk, time talking about finding the balance between working on God's kingdom versus working the field. He doesn't talk about any of that. What Nehemiah goes after is the fact that you have wealthy people who are taking advantage of the poor, and what they're doing is they're accumulating money in a way that dishonors God. Some of you have been in conversation with me before, and I, and I can't have time to do this justice. I, there's an excerpt from a book called, the, the book's called uh, Gospel at Work, and it's in the bookstore, as Rusty is pointing to. It is in the bookstore, Gospel at Work. There's a chapter in there called Balancing, how to balance like church, work, life, so on and so forth. And in there, there's this wonderful talk about faithfulness versus fruitfulness, Okay. Now, he's defining those a little bit different than we've traditionally defined faithfulness and fruitfulness, so you'll have to go read it. I'm going to try to give you enough not to confuse you at this moment, um, but not enough so you can just go read the chapter. So, if you're confused, you can be spurred to go read the chapter. If you read the whole book, it would be even better. Faithfulness and fruitfulness. So, he, he's, he defines fruitfulness in such a way that, that fruitfulness is not necessity for godliness, but faithfulness is. So faithfulness is what has God commanded me to do in all aspects of my life, so working and, and church and husbandry and whiffery and, and uh, you know, parenting and all those things, right? Like, how is, how is, what does it look like to be faithful in all of these areas? What does it look like to be faithful? Now, fruitfulness is not necessarily, it's not mandated, but... It can be good and it can be bad. So what he helps us understand is that I need to look at what does it look like to earn money for my family? What does it look like to earn money uh, for even things that we desire but don't, don't necessarily need? What does it look like for me to live faithful as a husband and live faithful here? And then think about the idea that if I am being faithful in all these areas that God's called me to be faithful in, then I can look at seeking fruitfulness which is beyond the faithfulness in a particular area. But what happens, is he says, is when we choose to, to seek fruitfulness in one area to the forsaking of faithfulness in a, another area, then we have now made this fruitfulness into idolatry. We have now begun to worship so this, this area. So, for example, your call as a husband is not to make 50 grand a year. It's not to make 100 grand a year. It's not, to, it's not even necessarily to make... 30 or 10. Your call is to make enough to care for your family, to provide for the needs of your family. Now, so let's say to do that, you need to work 40 hours a week, making, you know, whatever it is, 15 bucks, 20 bucks an hour, wh whatever it is. That's what you need in order to, to be faithful where God has put you and care for your family. But let's say you could work 50 hours a week and get that promotion, right? You can maybe work 60 hours a week and aim towards getting that promotion. But in order to spend the extra 10 or the extra 20 hours a week getting that promotion, you're going to have to forsake faithfulness maybe in your parenting. You're not going to be there for your kids as much. And right now they, they need to hear from mom. They need to hear from dad. And, but you're going to have to be working. 
So now your faithfulness in this area is going to start lacking. And the challenge, he says, is maybe what we've done now is we've created an idolatry out of earning more money, out of making more means. When God hasn't called us necessarily to that promotion, God has just called you to provide for your family. So I don't have time to tease all that out. This would be a good point for us to talk about in house gathering this week. But if you accumulate money, if, you're, if, you're, if the way you accumulate money prohibits you from being faithful in other ways, then your accumulation of that money has become an idol to you. And I think that's part of what's going on with these people. Their accumulation of money has been to the forsaking of caring for their brothers and sisters. God has called them to care for their brothers and sisters. We're going to get to the Deuteronomy and Leviticus passage a little bit later. But God has called them to care for their brothers and sisters. They're forsaking that in order to build the wealth that's in their pocket. Let me give you an example. If, if your accumulation of money prohibits you from laying down your life for your brother or sister in the body of Christ, then you might have an idolatry problem. You might have now turned the accumulation of money into a sin, into a problem. Now, I would say, on the other hand, if you can amass lots of money and still be faithful where God has called you to be faithful, then get at it. Make some money, all right? And then share it. Not with me. Yeah, I'm just kidding. So accumulate money in a way that honors God, okay? Second thought. Deal with God's money in a way that enables other Christians to devote themselves to the work of the church. I'm going to nuance that here in a second. Deal with God's money. A reformer will deal with God's money in a way that enables other Christians to devote themselves to proclaiming the gospel, to advancing the kingdom, to, to bringing about reformation, however you want to say that. I probably should have said it the latter way anyways. Because what I don't want you to think here is just strictly to renovation corporate church stuff. Galatians 6.10 so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of God. Alright, so, we deal with money in a way that enables other Christians to devote themselves to the building of God's kingdom. But what's happening in this passage is that the wealthy are dealing with their money in such a way that it's actually prohibiting, it's actually, actually hindering the work on the wall, the work on God's kingdom. So we need to think, ask ourselves, are we spending money, are we earning money in such a way that is prohibiting our brothers and sisters around us from doing their work on the wall? I'll give you a couple different examples. So the first one is the idea of the work of the church. I want you to understand this, is, again, as kingdom building more broadly. Now, I think this certainly has application to the care of elders, to the care of your pastors. This is where we roll out the $65 million jet and say, all right, let's give money towards that. No, what we're just talking about, we're, 
Are you dealing with God's money in a way that allows your elders to devote themselves to the work of the church? So, just, just as a point of clarity, like, Rusty and I are not employees of Renovation Church. We're not employees. Some churches view pastors as employees and you do our bidding. It's not the way it is. Pastors lead the flock and trust God for provision. And the way, primarily, that God intends to take care of his shepherds is through the church, through the provision of the church. But it, so the question is, are you dealing with God's money in a way that allows you to enable your elders to devote themselves to the work of the church, to the work of kingdom building? Now, the, the beautiful thing about that is that what is then Rusty and I's job? Our job is to help you build the kingdom. So it's just a, it's a, it's a beautiful relationship. It should be anyways. And, and I think ours is. But are you dealing with God's money in a way that doesn't? And I have this question in my notes, which is a little scathing, I, I understand. But what bills each month do you pay for out of your tithe? Because I think that would be an example of spending your money in a way that is actually disabling or hindering your brothers from devoting themselves to the work of building the kingdom. So let's, now let's move beyond that. Maybe you earn money in such a way, so now we're kind of moving beyond the, the, the tithing idea here. Because it's not, this is, this is sermon certainly is not primarily about tithing, although tithing is a big piece of that. But maybe you earn money in such a way that it prohibits your partnership in gospel proclamation with your brother or sister. So this is what I hear all the time, well I'm just busy, 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 busy. And what we've done is we have, we have made synonymous the idea of being busy with the idea of righteousness. When actually maybe what we're busy, we're too busy doing things that we shouldn't be doing. And it leaves us no time for proclaiming the gospel and doing community and life with each other. So just thinking about the idea of money here because that's the vein in the context of the passage. Maybe you're earning money in such a way that's prohibiting your partnership with others for the gospel. Now, as we bear one another's burdens, we enable each other to seek reformation. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. That as a community, if we're going to earn money, if we're going to spend money in a way that's for the benefit of the community, then what we're talking about here is the idea of bearing one another's burdens, seeing a need, filling the need. Instead of seeing the fact that they need and then using that to pad my pocket, which is what's going on in this context. But in a community, what happens is oftentimes... We as people, because there are genuine needs in our lives and we're struggling to meet those needs, sometimes because of poor decisions, sometimes because of that's what God has dealt us. Well, I mean, in both cases, God has dealt us that, but do you know what I'm saying? So sometimes it's because of poor decisions. Sometimes it's, we've done wise decisions and it's just where we're at. But sometimes those genuine needs, are they, they hinder us from building the wall from doing because maybe we're and what's what's meant to happen is the body's supposed to come in and help us meet those needs so that we can all build the wall together to share those burdens to 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 carry each other's burdens 
to help enable and strengthen each other's calling and ability instead of watching a brother go in need and turning our head to him. You know, many say, I have, I have nothing to give. The truth is, they have nothing to give when they're done spending precisely because they're never done spending. Bottom line, a reformer will be thinking beyond himself. The wealthy in this passage were not thinking beyond themselves. They weren't thinking about the wall. They weren't thinking about building God's kingdom. They were thinking about themselves. Let's continue reading in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. First of all, just notice, I, I love the fact, I was angry when I heard their outcome. I mean, just see his indignation, he is upset. And I love the fact that he says in verse 7, I took counsel with myself. I think Nehemiah at this point is angry and he, okay, okay. How am I going to handle this situation? That's just a side note. The next thought we need to think about here is a reformer will display God's generosity and wisdom when it comes to stewarding God's money. <coughs> a reformer will display God's generosity and wisdom when it comes to stewarding God's money. Nehemiah's response. Let's take a look at Nehemiah's response at what's happening. Right, so these people are not earning money in a way that honors God. Look what Nehemiah does. He was angered because God's people were taking advantage of God's kingdom building. That's what's happening. God's people were busy building God's kingdom, and in the process, they were unable to take care of the land and other means that they needed to take care of. What happened then is this created then a business where others could take advantage of their desperation and so use it to build their own kingdom and oppress the poor with no concern for their well-being. Now this sounds very similar to another story. You should go read sometime this week, Matthew chapter 21, Jesus in the temple. Jesus walks this where Jesus walks into the temple and he overturns the table. Get out of here, get out of here. We see his, we see Jesus' righteous indignation, his, his righteous anger we see poured out in these moments. What happens, just to give you a little bit of background on Matthew 21 real quick, is that God's people would walk great distances to come to the temple in order to make their sacrifices. This is a part of kingdom building. What is God's kingdom to look like? Well, the people are to, to walk and make sacrifices at this point as a part of the old covenant. This is, again, a part of God's kingdom. God's people living in a rhythm of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. So these people would travel to the temple. They were making great sacrifices in order to live out God's vision for their lives. In the process of them having to travel, there arose this great opportunity to sell pigeons and other necessary items for sacrifice. 
items like, for example, in order to, for them to, to come to the sacrifice, they were, they were to bring a shekel to tribute to the temple. But at that point, the, the currency was, was Roman, uh, the Roman coin. So they'd have to do an exchange. So what was happening is a lot of these people would travel. They couldn't bring pigeons with them. They couldn't bring, you know, the sacrifices with them. So what they'd do is they had these people that would be there selling these sacrifices and selling them in the temple. And what they were doing, these sellers were taking advantage of those building God's kingdom by gouging them with the prices on animals and the exchange rates on the shekel, on the Roman to the shekel coin. So these people were were taking advantage of those who were building God's kingdom. They were using it as an opportunity to oppress them. So they would charge them more than what they should have been charged. They were exchanging at a greater rate than what they should have. Some scholars think that it was the Pharisees that were actually behind doing some of this. And what do you see? You see Jesus responds with righteous indignation. He was furious because people were taking advantage of God's kingdom building and using it to essentially build their own kingdom. So Jesus is upset. He's angered. You know, and I think oftentimes we do the same thing when we fail to be generous and faithful in our tithe and our care for others. What happens is we take advantage of God's kingdom building. Instead of doing this, being faithful here, we build our own kingdom. Now what was, what was the basis for Nehemiah's indignation? What was the basis for Nehemiah's anger? Here we have the leader of God's covenant community calls the leaders who have oppressed the people to give back what they have taken according to the covenant. Why does he do that? What, what is he referring to? Why does he call them brothers? You're selling your brothers. Why does he do that? You can go back and read Deuteronomy 23, Leviticus 25. I'm just going to read two verses from Deuteronomy 23, starting in verse 19. He says this, You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So this giving back of money, this giving back of money that Nehemiah is encouraging them to do or, or telling them they need to do, will allow those in the covenant community to continue the work of advancing the kingdom. I think this is Nehemiah's greatest concern. These people are able to continue doing what God has called them to do. Now I want us to notice Nehemiah's deep conviction, driving him to do something about the situation. Notice this deep conviction and what it leads to. It leads to this anger over the situation. And I have to ask the question, do we have a deep conviction when it comes to using God's money? Read verse 9. Nehemiah says, So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? You know, a reformer will display God's generosity and wisdom when he deals with money in a way that displays his fear of God. Do we deal with our money? Do we display God's generosity and wisdom 
in a way that shows that we fear God. Again, they were, they were dealing with God's money in such a way that actually hindered the building of God's kingdom. They were using resources as a means of personal gain. As this had a negative impact on the mission of God, namely building the city, what would happen? The nations would taunt them. The nations would taunt them as, as the kingdom would be slowed down, as God's kingdom would not look different as it should. And Nehemiah focuses appeal on God and for the people to be concerned with God's reputation among the nations. Nehemiah, again, this is, this is a theme from the very beginning of this book. God is, Nehemiah is concerned, what does God look like to the nations? And we're starting, what you're starting to see is, you're starting to see a change from Nehemiah's, it's about building the wall, it's about building the wall, and now it's starting to turn in towards the heart and where the people are at. And this is, this is where the book's going to continue to take us as we head towards repentance of the heart. So Nehemiah begins to turn their focus on, are they concerned about God's reputation as it deals with their money? So, how do we use God's money in a way that might turn the taunt of the nations towards us? Here's a few examples. Maybe going into debt for something we worship says that our God is not all that we need, but instead we need what the world needs. I've got to have that car. I've got to have that nicer house that I really can't afford. I've got to I got to eat out 15 times a week, or I got to eat, you know, whatever the case may be. Another example, maybe not having enough money left over at the end of the month says that our God doesn't take care of our needs. No, He takes care of our needs. It's just you keep spending the money on your wants instead of on your needs. But when we live that way, the world just taunts us. Oh, your God doesn't provide. Your God doesn't take care of your needs. No, He does. He really does. Give me a third example. Not supporting the kingdom says that the walls that the kingdom that we are building isn't really that important. All right, so you think through that some more. Are we spending money in a way that shows that we fear God? How do we spend money away? Well, we need to know what God's Word ultimately says about money and then live in light of that. Live in light with money, earning and spending money in a way that reflects God and, and God's way for us to do that. But our Reformer also will display God's generosity and wisdom when he uses God's resources. Again, I don't want to keep pounding this idea. But he uses resources to build God's kingdom. Use God's resources to build God's kingdom. This should be our rule of thumb, period. Right, so we're talking so much more than just giving 10% and tithe to a church. right? We're talking so much more than that. Well, people, you just want my 10%. No, I want it all. Right? Want it all. God wants it all. I heard a preacher say one time, 10% to the church, 10% to offering, and the other 80% you get to do with whatever you want. And I thought, oh, that's horrid. 
Actually, I didn't at the time. I thought it was a good idea. Now I think, wow, Matt, you were quite stupid. <laughs> it's terrible. No, God wants it all. Matter of fact, it is all His. And what He wants is for you to steward it all for His purposes. He wants you to give it all for His purposes. So again, we ask the question, what, is it, what does God's kingdom look like? What does it look like to build God's kingdom? What is God's vision for these various areas? And then how does, how does the money God's given me play a role in those various areas? So what's God's vision for the way I care for my brother or sister in Christ? Again, this is very circumstantial. It's going to look different for all of us. We all have different pools of money. We all have different people in our lives that have needs. And, and we have different people in the church even that we're close to. And some are closer to these people. Some are closer to these people. So you're aware of different needs. So it's all going to look different. But what is God's vision for the way I care for my brother or sister in Christ? Well, certainly First John says we should be willing to lay down our lives for our brothers or sisters. What does that mean to financially lay down your life for your brother or for your sister? What is God's vision for the way I should care for? Let's get a little more practical here, too. What, what does it mean for the way I should care for my home and for my property? For the little space of land that God has given me to take care of the ground. Right? What does it mean to, to, to take care of the ground, to, to care for what God has given you? What is it? Caring for our cars, caring for our houses. What does it mean to do that? Again, it's going to look different for different people, but what does it look like? You know, a conviction of mine, I, mean, I would hope that you would share, but a conviction of mine is something's broken, we fix it. You really learn that lesson when it involves your water treatment system, and you live in Greene County. Uh, we have hard, 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 nasty water, and uh, water treatment system, when you're on a well, is quite important. As it breaks, like, like one time, I did not know that my iron filter was broken, until my dishwasher started turning orange, and the shower started turning orange. It's broken. How do I care for it? How do I spend money in a way that builds God? i got to go fix this. It's for my family. Because if I don't fix this, it's going to break this over here, and it's going to break this over here, and i got to fix this. Again, what is God's vision? What does God's kingdom look like? What is, it, what is God's vision for how I take care of my church and my elders? We've kind of addressed this already. What is, what is God's vision for the kind of lifestyle that my family should have? You know, it's a good question that we should be asking. Is God calling us to have an $80,000 a year lifestyle? Or is He calling us to have a $45,000 a year lifestyle so we can give $35,000 of it away? What's He calling us to? What is God's vision for that? Again, I, I want to stick to like scripturally what is God what is with scripture what is he how, how do I lay down my life and then how that gets expressed contextually is going to look a little different I understand that so as we think about using God's resources to build God's kingdom in order to use God's resources we have to be wise with our money we have to be wise this honors this reflects God we are wise with our money it reflects God's wisdom when we are unwise with our money, we are saying to the world that our God is unwise. I don't. I didn't put the quote, or the Proverbs quote, but it, in here. But it talks about how the the wealth of the wise is their crown. 
the wealth of the wise is their crown. I think it's Proverbs 24, I think, somewhere in there. But, like, there's an aspect of wisdom that leads to, I don't think necessarily the amassing of money, but certainly the security, the, uh, the having, I, anyway, I don't want to flesh that out right now, but in order to use God's resource, we have to be wise with our money. We all need reformation of the heart that will lead us to then generosity with our money. Because that's a big piece here too. These people were not being generous with their money. What did Nehemiah do? He wanted them to then in turn be generous with their money. Give it all back. Don't charge them any interest. Wow. (laughs) I mean, these people were making money this way. And he's saying, give it all back. And of course, how do they respond? They say, "We, we will. We do it. We'll do it. Look what Augustine said. He said, find out how much God has given you, and from it take what you need. The remainder is needed for others. That is very true within the body of Christ. Verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, And the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. I just want to simply point out here that a reformer or a follower of Christ will want to honor God with their financial practices. With what we do with our money, how we earn it, how we spend it, we will want to do it in a way that honors God. You know, Nehemiah here confesses that he and his brothers and their servants are doing the same thing. So it's interesting here, you have a leader, this is where we again see some of, the, some of the downfall, some of the sinfulness of even the leader here, but what's different here than many leaders is that Nehemiah sees his sin and calls it as such, and we see him turn from it in repentance into faith and doing what's right. Nehemiah says, let us stop doing this, and you all stop doing this as well. So just notice, in Nehemiah and the people, the turning from sin, and then the praising of God in the process. Alright, so on to the last point here. So reformer thinks beyond himself when it comes to earning and spending, and he also displays God's wisdom and generosity. Lastly, a reformer loves something more than money. A reformer loves something more than money. What is remarkable in the verses to come is that Nehemiah has somehow figured out, or it was somehow, sorry, Nehemiah was somehow free to forego the privileges that belonged to him. He had certain privileges that were his. 
there are already established practices as the governor of the land of Judah. That he would get these certain things, these certain benefits. He had financial privileges and food privileges. This was just, it was just commonplace. It was his for the taking. But instead, he ceased his enjoyment of the food and the financial allotment that was his as governor. You see that in verse 14. Now here's the deal. Nothing forced Nehemiah to let go of his privileges. There wasn't like a, a new ruling or King Artaxerxes made a new plan. No, instead, he let go. He was what freed him of these privileges of taking these privileges was his experience of something better than those privileges. The fact that he delighted in something else more than the privileges that were his as the governor. Now we live in a culture today where we have lots of privileges. We have lots of things that are good that we delight in and aren't, ne- and aren't even necessarily evil. I mean, there's, there's no indication that these things that the governor was able to enjoy were evil. They were amoral. There was not a, morale, a, a moral quality to them. But they were being used in such a way, he felt, that was oppressing the people. So then it became immoral to do these things for Nehemiah. But Nehemiah knows Instead of enjoying these privileges, he knows that faith in God and love for people is much better than money and food. There was more delight, it was more delightful to Nehemiah, the faith in God and the care for the people, than indulging himself in his world. And this is where we struggle. The American culture is go indulge yourself. Matter of fact, go indulge yourself with our product. That, That is our culture. Come buy our product and indulge yourself. You won't be able to indulge yourself anywhere else but with what we're trying to sell you. But go indulge yourself. The American dream. You can have it all. You've got to work hard enough. Anyone can be president, right? Look at verse 14. It says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah... From the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily uh, ration, forty shekels of silver. Even the servants lorded it over the people. So what are we to love more than money? What should we love more than money? I have three things here, very simply. Number one, love people more than money. Love people more than money. Nehemiah loved more the good that would come from building the building of the wall for the people of God than he did his prestige as governor. He cared more about what good would come for the people than he did the building of his own kingdom, the prestigiousness that came with him being the governor. Remember, God's vision is that we'd love our neighbors as ourselves. Bringing about peace, bringing about... Our world loves money so much, they will step on people to get it. It happens all over the place. It happens in churches. 
God's vision is that we would lay down our money in order to love our neighbor. We would use our money in order to love our neighbor. Particularly within the community of God. I want to remind you of this verse, 1 John chapter 3, 7, or 16 through 18 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What he's saying is that if we have and our brother needs, then we give to our brother. And what is the model of this? What is the extremeness of our willingness to do this? Should be the fact that Jesus laid down his life, so we ought to lay down our life. One of the ways that we lay down our lives for our brothers is by caring for them. Now, I want to point out something to us. You're not just caring for your brother for the sake of their survival. I want to point you to something bigger. You're caring for your brother or your sister so that they can build God's kingdom. Right? This is a part of something much, 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 much bigger than them just having another bite of food in their belly. This is what Nehemiah is calling us to. Why did Nehemiah forego these things? He's giving the opposite example. The other people were abusing their privileges to take money from the people. And Nehemiah over here is juxtaposed where Nehemiah is giving up his privileges so that he can care for the people. The abuse of the people prohibited what? The building of the wall. The, the care for the people did what? It enabled the building of the wall. Now how about that for an investment? It's not just so that they can make another house payment or so that they can have a little bit nicer car or whatever the case may be. Those are important. But so that they can build God's kingdom. So they can live as God has called them to live. So they can care for their family. So they can, whatever the case may be. Go down the verse, the second part of verse 15 that I stopped at. He says, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Nehemiah says, I did not take advantage of my privileges. I did not use my privileges because of the fear of God. So the second thing I would say is this. Love God more than money. Love others more than money. Love God more than money. Guys, here's the deal. Nehemiah loved the glorious declaration of his God more than he did the prestigious declaration of his own authority and power. He loved more that God's name would be made great than his name as governor would be made great. Nehemiah is displaying his love of God that has captivated his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, Nehemiah is not without sin, but he is modeling for us what it looks like to love and trust God and not trust in his wealth. He was trusting in God's direction, God's vision, in, in God himself, and not trusting in his wealth. The wealth was just simply a means, a tool, an opportunity to use and display his trust of God. 
what we see ultimately here is that Nehemiah is showing us the essence of the law. Love for God and love for neighbor. You see, fear of God, care for the people. Jesus asked, what, is, what should we do, right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And we will see Jesus ultimately fulfill this. But Nehemiah is painting a picture for us here of what that looks like. Loving God, loving people. Loving God, loving people. We love money, and when we get around to it, we might use it to love people. And we might use it to love God. But we use money. We love God. We love people. And we display that with money. And Nehemiah is showing us that here. This is key. Love something more than money. Love people more than money. Love God more than money. Let's keep reading verse 16. Because I also persevered in the work on this wall. And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. And he says these words, Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. The third thing I would say, is we love people, love God, Love building God's kingdom more than money. Love building God's kingdom more than money. All right, notice here. Notice here that Nehemiah was still extremely wealthy. We can't miss this. He had lots of money. Having money is not a sin. Spending money is not a sin. Can you imagine the slaughtering of an ox a day? I mean, I've got three boys, and I get a couple more boys. We might be up to an ox a day some, someday. <laughs> may have to tap into that cattle on a thousand hills or something. He did this for 12 years. Just do the math, right? 12 times 365 ox a day is 4,380 ox. Someone had a lot of oxes. Oxi? Oxen. There we go. Someone had a lot of oxen. There we go. That's a lot. So either someone had a lot of oxen, and then he either, either he had a lot, or he had to buy a lot. Either way, he had lots of money. He had lots of wealth. Now do the math. Twelve sheep a day. Twelve years times 365. That's 26,280 sheep. That's a lot. You see Scripture here propping up Nehemiah's desire to move the kingdom forward and to care for God's people, right? That's what you see happening here. It, it, is, it is showing us as a model Nehemiah's desire to move the kingdom forward. At the same time, there seems to be no issue with Nehemiah still living relatively extravagantly compared to the poor in the land. So make note of that. There are still poor. He's caring for the poor. 
at the same time he's enjoying his wealth. And I think we have to be careful because we often equate wealth of materials. Sorry, I think we have to be careful because we often equate wealth of materials to poverty of soul and poverty of materials to wealth of soul. What I mean by that is that if you live like you are poor, then you must be more spiritual. As where if you are rich, then you must not be as spiritual. For Samuel 2.7 says this, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. <coughs> instead, instead of equating poverty with spirituality, like great spirituality and the inverse of that, we see here that God is the one who makes poor and God is the one who makes rich. If we see this, we have realize we have little control over this. You should praise God if He has made you wealthy. You should praise God if He has made you poor. Let's just, let me nuance this a little bit though. Let's be careful to not ignore the fact that it could be for sinful reasons that we are one or the other. God can still be sovereign over that, but it could be our sinful reasons that has taken us into poverty, and it could be our sinful reasons that have taken us into wealth. And if we think about God as the one who makes poor and makes rich, this will also lead us to using our wealth to advance the gospel. We'll also use our poverty to advance the gospel. Because remember, it's not a means of how, it's not a matter of how much we have, it's of how we use it, it's how we steward it. Alright, so the balance that we are driving at here is, is the desire Nehemiah's greatest desire was to see God's kingdom advanced, even at his own expense. Nehemiah is as generous as he is wealthy. And what we see here is someone who loved God's glory more than he did his own glory. Now, I know our tendency of Christians is going to be, okay, well, I've got to draw a line somewhere, so... So if I just if I keep 80% for myself and do whatever I want to, and 20% I'm going to give to other people and the church and so on and so forth, and, and then I can be, uh, that's all grand, right? I mean, that would be legalism. I just, as long as I get my checkbox and good. No, no, no. Where's your heart at in the 80? And where's your heart at in the 20? <clears throat> Are you using the 80 to build your, still build your own kingdom? I mean, you can, you can give it all away. And still use whatever you're using to live on to build your own kingdom and be just as sinful as a person who gives nothing away. What we see here, though, is someone who loved God's glory more than he did his own glory. Someone who truly had wealth of soul and wealth of materials. He had both. And this is okay. the proposition we need to consider today how we can live earning and spending money in a way that builds God's kingdom remember giving all of your money away will not make you right with God at the same time having lots of money doesn't mean that it's God's approval of your dealings there's a balance there's an understanding the Lord is the one who makes rich and the one who makes poor 
our wonderful opportunity is to steward these resources no matter where we fall on the economic scale in such a way to build God's kingdom. You need to think of it this way. Whichever portion of the wall you're being asked to build, God has given you all the resources necessary to do it. Now you need to be faithful in using it for that purpose. So when you think about it, and maybe we need to flesh out in house gathering, what portion of the wall are you responsible to build? So, what is it, so then we can think about how then, do I, how then do I steward the resources to do that? Because God has given me everything that I need. How come I keep coming up short? Well, maybe it's because I'm, I'm trying to squeeze in my kingdom in the middle of some of that. Think about some of these walls. One of the walls you're called to build is supporting the work of God in this place. He has given you a means to tithe. It could just be that you're spending it elsewhere. We need to think beyond ourselves when it comes to the way we accumulate and the way we spend money. We need to display God's generosity and wisdom when it comes to the way we accumulate and spend money. Lastly, we need to love God and His people more than we do money. The reality is we can never do this perfectly and in such a way as to receive a seat at God's dinner table. I hope you see here what we're talking about. This is hard. We can't do this perfectly. We can't do this. We can't earn favor with God. We can't spend our money in such a way that now God looks upon us as someone who is righteous or that we would then enjoy an ox at His table every day all of eternity but there was Christ right there was Christ let's think about Christ for just a few moments in our last few moments here and as we move towards communion here in a few minutes Christ has all the wealth of the universe he had has and will always have he owns it all right you all got that he owns it all he owned it all he still does God could have kept it all as we deserve nothing from God except wrath and condemnation. That's what we deserve. We did not deserve to share in His wealth. Instead, what happens though? Christ humbles Himself to the point of a servant, even death on a cross. Let's read Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What do you see happening? The wealth of Christ. He empties himself, takes on the form of a servant. The privileges. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do you see? You see the humbling and then you see the exaltation. You see the giving up of privileges and you see the granting of wealth. Christ spent God's resources in a way to bring His Father glory. He cared more about the kingdom of His Father than any other kingdom that He could have built. 
He emptied himself of the wealth of heaven in order to seek reformation. He forwent the privileges of heaven in order to bear the burden of humanity and the wrath of God for our sins. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. He spent all that he had in order to establish God's new covenant in himself. The very thing that would then pave the way for everything we talk about today. He gave it all up so that then we could seek reformation. We could be reformed and seek reformation. Jesus' death on the cross provides for us the very resources we need in order to seek the reformation we even talk about. We have everything we need in order to do what God has called us to do. The very vision that He has laid out that we are seeking to bring about requires though something very, very specific and something very, very primary. You see, listen, all the rules and regulations concerning money in the Old Covenant, they're pointing to a couple different things, but one of the things that they're pointing to is man's spiritual poverty. God gave these regulations concerning money because it reveals hearts that find their hope in money and hope in using this money to build their own kingdom. And you see, Jesus' death provides for us the new hearts that are necessary to build God's kingdom. How do we, how do we love God more than Money, how do we love people more than money? How do we show God's generosity and wisdom in money? How do, we, how do we do these things? We have to have a new heart. That new heart has to come from Christ. Repentance and faith in Christ. You see, this new heart, it's this new heart that desires to see reformation take place. Why? Because that heart has experienced Reformation. The new hearts that desire to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so by God's grace, when we repent of our sins and submit our whole selves to God and place faith in Jesus' payment for those sins on the cross, we now have all the resources we will ever need to do the work that is prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Since we prepare for communion here in just a few moments, we need to be reminded that the flesh and the blood of Jesus was the price He paid, the privileges He gave up in seeking the reformation of His people. He gave up His privileges in order that we might obtain redemption, the ultimate display of reformation. So, I want to give you a few instructions as we taking communion here in just a few moments. Um, We're going to have a couple up here uh, that are going to hold, someone's going to hold the blood or the juice. Someone's going to hold the bread. The same thing, walk up, you know, as you're ready. Take a piece, dip it into the juice. We're just going to have a member of the body serve the body. Um, There's a little bit of a change that Rusty and I would like to make. Instead of just going up to a table, this would give us a chance as different members of the body as can serve the body, the elements of, uh, uh, in communion. And so we want to do that. And another instruction I, I want to give you 
I'd encourage you that if you have unrepentance in your heart, to, to repent of that, spend time in prayer. Um, ask God to reveal any sin in your heart that you need to repent of before taking of communion. And, and along with that, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then I would encourage you to just watch the body as, as we together remember the sacrifice of our Lord. I don't, I don't want to single you out or anything like that, but just you get to watch and, and, and enjoy um, that uh, as, as we do that. So um, I want to pray for us, and uh, we'll take in communion here in a few moments. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your graciousness this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to remember the body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for us. Father, as we look at Nehemiah here, we, we see not the Christ, but we see a shadow of the Christ come. We, we see someone who, who in many ways we can certainly relate to. And we see and we have sin in our own lives that where we are pressing those around us or taking advantage of, of those around us. And so, Father, uh, just ask that you help us to see that where we are not using our money for a means to build your kingdom, but using our money and as a means to build. Um, I'm sorry, Father, we, where we use our money to build our kingdom instead of your kingdom. Father, forgive us of that. Father, I pray that, uh, that as we take in communion together, this would be something that would unite us with you and unite us with each other. And Father, we would remember as we take of the body and take of the, the, the blood that, that we remember that the price was paid for the kingdom that you've called us to build. That the blood's already been shed, the victory's already been won. And now we get to live in the fruit of that. So, Father, just thank you for that. Lord, be with us as we partake in communion together. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.